Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. So welcome everybody. Who brought the flower? Cute. <laughs> I had my eyes closed. I opened my eyes and there's a flower here. Bonnie, <laughs> Bonnie Law. <laughs> Very precious. Very precious. Let's put it out here. Everyone to enjoy. It'll grow during the sit. All this love energy. <laughs> so we're going to talk today about what I like to call the great paradox and Wendy talked a few weeks ago about the paradox of mindfulness, and I wasn't there, so we might hit upon some, some similar things. But we're going to talk about the paradox of, of doing and being. <clears throat> and the different teachings that we learn about between doing and being they could be confusing, so we're going to talk about them and see how we could, we could use both of these teachings for inspiration instead of confusion. So first, I want to talk a little bit about eclectism. How many here practice from a certain lineage, and this is all they practice, 100%, is from one certain tradition. So how many people here practice and get teachings and actual meditations from a variety of different practices? <laughs> Almost all of us, right? So here, in the West, a spiritual aspirant is exposed to just about everything you could imagine, right? When you go to the go to the bookstores in the in the spiritual sections, I remember back, you know, 25 years ago, I started seeking. I used to go, and there would be like this small little section, <laughs> this tiny little metaphysics or something like this. And now you go, there's New Age metaphysics psychic, and you have the Buddhism and Hinduism, Sufism, and then the Buddhist section used to be tiny, just this little tiny little section. You might get a few, uh, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh books or something. And now all sorts, you have Theravada Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, all the different schools of Tibetan Buddhism, just in Buddhism. So we're exposed to all of this. Which is good that we're exposed to it. And then, of course, it's bad that we're exposed to it just because we don't know what to do. We get spiritual indigestion, right? <laughs> There's so much to, to take in. And where does it go? Where does it fit? What order does it go in? Now, we, we seem to karmically just take a path and we just take something here and then take something there and things come to us, we read a book, it leads us to a teacher, a teaching and all of a sudden we're over here now and we're learning this practice and doing this practice. But actually, the core teachings from most of the long traditions actually had a gradual path. And minus a few exceptions, Enlightened beings have followed a gradual path. So some people spontaneously awake. They don't have a path. They spontaneously awake. But this is very rare. But most follow some kind of path. For example, there's many traditions, but Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, they turn out enlightened beings like an assembly line for you know thousands of years. It just it just works. Just they just turn them out. It's like oh. Enlightened being, enlightened being, enlightened being. 
and they follow some sort of actual path. Now, in that path, there is relative reality, ultimate reality. So I'll just like unpack these. This is actually what we're talking about, this being and doing, this dual and non-dual. So how many people are familiar with, with these two, either the terms dual and non-dual, or ultimate and relative reality? I see not, I have a raise of hands. I see a lot of people nodding, kind of. Okay. Kind of, okay. So relative reality, there is still subject and object. This is relative reality, and relative reality is our existence here, we would be considered relative reality. Things are relative to one another. There's big and there's small. There's fast and slow. There is a self, a non-self. There is enlightenment, non-enlightenment, right? Relative reality. And this is dual. This is a dualism. So then non-dual, or ultimate reality, is that there is, there is none, there is just empty emptiness of inherent existence. So everything just is. There's no conceptual reality. So there is no self to even practice meditation. So therefore, there is no enlightenment or non-enlightenment. There's no nirvana. There's no samsara. There's no Buddha. There's no non-Buddha. Everything just absolutely is. So this is, this is emptiness. So there's different schools that teach non-dual or dual. And if we select different, different teachers, so how many people follow or have read Eckhart Tolle? Right? Non-dual. Adi Ashante. Non-dual. Byron Katie. Non-dual. Right? So, and then if you have teachers, how many people follow Thich Nhat Hanh? Oh, come on, I know this. <laughs> so Thich Nhat Hanh teaches mostly relative reality, although not all the time, but, but dual. A lot of the, the traditional paths, they teach mostly, mostly dual relative reality. Now, the reason is, is that we actually live until we're enlightened here in relative reality. And so if we can't get it together here, we can't actually supersede this reality into ultimate reality. So they teach things like ethics, right? They teach things like how to be a good person. This is usually the first thing that you get taught, right? How to be just a good person, yama niyama, right? Just the characteristics of a good human being. The Dalai Lama says Buddhism is 90% psychology. Well, it's 90% psychology for a reason, because if we can't stabilize our mind in life, in this samsaric relative reality, then how could we actually supersede our mind into this enlightened space? So all these amazing teachings that we get that are of the lesser vehicle, the lesser kind, are actually teaching us how to have a stable mind, how to deal with this crazy, crazy world we live in. So we could sit and meditate at the end of the day and not have crazy monkey mind. So in our culture, we want everything right now, right? Super fast. We want the best way to enlightenment. How many of us want to take countless eons to reach enlightenment? <laughs> and how many of us want to reach enlightenment in this lifetime? Right? So when you read, when you read that like a teacher's coming and they say they're going to teach 
about enlightened mind, like true nature. So in Buddhism, the non-dual practices are called Dzogchen, or you will see Mahamudra, Dzogchen, or Ati Yoga. This is, this is non-dual. Resting in your true nature is a very high practice. So everybody floods to those high practices, right? You'll see the teachers will say, oh, Dzogchen, highest teaching, you know? And there'll be like 100 people will come. And then the teacher will put Lam Rem, the gradual path to enlightenment. 20 people will show up, right? <laughs> Talk about just kindness, how to be good to your neighbor. 20 people. Dzogchen, 100 people. So I, I used to live at the retreat centers, and so the teachers would call the, the attendants and say, well, we're going to teach about this, but put Zogchen in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and so people flock, and then they start teaching, and meh, there's Zogchen at the very end. But the lion's share is about how do you actually get there? How do you actually stabilize your mind to get there? This is what's most important is that when we learn about both of these is that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, of course, we need to rest in our pure beingness. We actually need to drop this self and non-self. We need to. But at the same time, we need to cultivate and we need to water the seeds of our pure mind to experience our pure mind. Take an athlete, for example, raw talent born athlete, raw talent. What if that athlete never trained? Would that athlete be, be able to go to the top of his or her, her game if never trained? Right. How about a musician? Raw talent, amazing musician. The raw talent of, of being an amazing musician. If that musician never practiced, would they be able to go to the top of their game? Or how about a leader? That leader never really learned the tools, even though they're a natural-born leader. Would they ever, ever be able to fully express who they are innately? It's just like us. So we hold the seed to this, this ama being these amazing beings. But if we don't cultivate what is actually innately there, it's, it's, it's a paradox. We actually are what we're seeking. We are the love, compassion, peace, infiniteness. Yet at the same time, we have to cultivate that so we can meet it. It's like a number line. We want to meet in the zero, the non-self. We're meeting there at zero, right? But non-cultivated, we just go off away from ourselves, right? So, but we already all are that. So we actually need to actually cultivate what we are and actually meet who we are. And it's the same thing like those musicians, those athletes. When they're actually at the very top of their game, they've studied and studied and they've trained and trained and trained and trained. And then what do they do at the very end when they're at the peak of their performance? They forget everything, right? They forget everything that they trained for, and they're, they just are, right? They're like in the zone, like when the athlete gets in the zone, he's actually not thinking about technique, about those 10,000 shots he's practiced and all those things that he learned from his coach, right? He's just being who he is. But there's the paradox. But he couldn't let go and just be exactly who he is without all of the practice. So the simple answer is both. The simple answer is that we need both. And it's like this in our practice and it's like this in our meditation. Every meditation, the technique, is there to be dropped. The technique is there to be forgotten. If we meditate on the breath, it's just to stabilize the mind, and then we sit. 
So I want to, sometimes I guide the, the beginning half an hour that we sit, but I want to do this one in silence. Because this is, silence is non-dual. Ramana used to teach like this. If you came and sat with Ramana, he would just sit in silence. He would just sit there. And he said, silence is the teaching. This is it. This is all you need. It's just this. Look at when we sit in silence, how much comes up for us. All the irritations come up, right? <laughs> how many people were irritated, at least for a moment, during that half an hour? Right? Yeah? All the negative mindset comes up. Everything we need to look at comes up. Yeah? It's like we don't need a teacher to point out all of what we need to look at. It all, it's all there. But then Ramana would say, if they didn't get this, then I would ask them a question. Who or what are you? And I'd ask them to go do inquiry on this. Find out who or what are you? If they didn't get that, he'd give them kriyas, he'd give them circulations of light. He'd give them a technique of mental stabilization if they didn't get that question. If they didn't get that, then he would teach ethics, morals. Then if they didn't get that, then they would wash the dishes, do karma yoga, clean the floors. And the important part to know is that none of those are lesser or higher than the other. You can become enlightened sweeping the floors. You become enlightened sitting in silence. It doesn't matter. And the reason why it doesn't matter is because the non those are all concepts. <clears throat> enlightened mind is free of concepts. And it just happens. I was sitting with a teacher, and his teacher is non-dual, and he's pretty much 100% non-dual. He don't do anything. You already are. Just release concepts. And he said, my teacher would tell me this and tell me this, but I had to seek. I had to. And even though he told me that, that this wasn't going to get me to enlightenment, I was already at the top of the mountain. I didn't care. I practiced anyway. I just did. And it happened for him even though it was like against the orders <laughs> of his teacher. So I'm just going to read a couple, a couple Zen teachings here. The mind is no mind of conceptual thought and it is completely detached from form. So Buddhas and sentient beings do not differ at all. You could rid yourself of conceptual thought. If you can rid yourself of conceptual thought, you will have accomplished everything. But if you students of the way do not rid yourselves of conceptual thought in a flash, even though you strive for eon after eon, you will never accomplish it. Emeshed in the material meritorious practices of the three vehicles, you will be unable to attain enlightenment. So he's saying if you're trying to gain merit by these lesser, lesser, lesser vehicles, you're not going to attain enlightenment. Nevertheless, the realization of the one mind may come after a shorter or longer period. There are those who, upon hearing this teaching, rid themselves of conceptual thought in a flash. There are others who do this after following through the ten beliefs the ten stages, the ten activities, and the ten bestowers of merit. Yet others accomplish it after passing through the ten stages of the Bodhisattva progress. So what he's saying is that I can give this teaching and some hear it in a flash. And then some feel the need to go through all these different stages, right? Whether they transcend conceptual thought by a longer or shorter way, the result is a state of being. There is no pious practicing and no acting of realizing. That there is nothing which can be attained is not idle talk. It is the truth. Moreover, whether you accomplish your aim in a single flash of thought or after 
going through the 10 stages of Bodhisattva's progress, the achievement will be the same. For this state of being admits of no degrees, so the latter method merely entails eons of unnecessary suffering and toil. So he's saying you can go, you could be a practitioner for countless eons, that's fine. <laughs> or you could just say, oh, I'm like this. But the point is, is that even these teachings, so like this teaching here, so this, this teaching of just release even your spiritual path, this is at the end of their path when they teach this. So what I mean by that is, so this, this path of Buddhism, they go through many preliminaries, say a similar one, the lineage that I'm affiliated with. We have our Nunjo practices. So even though the highest teaching is do not practice, do not meditate, do not not meditate, you still have to do 100,000 prostrations, 100,000 mandala offerings, 100,000 guru yogas, 100,000 Vajrasattva practices. So when you're doing these, the master knows where you're going. Yet, 100,000 prostrations, oh, so humbling, so amazing, full of devotion, negating the self with every prostration. You're saying mantras, doing the prostration, so beautiful, so amazing. So how can you rest in non-self when you have such a concrete self? You do 100,000 prostrations, you're not so concrete anymore. <laughs> it, breaks, it breaks down this, this ego. You know, mandala offerings, you, man, you offer all that you are to your lineage tree 100,000 times. It's a little ceremony. Right? So it's just devotion, devotion, right? Negating the self more and more. And then Vajrasafa, purification. This purification mantra is a hundred syllable mantra, and you visualize light from Vajrasafa cleansing your being with every mantra. This light coming from Vajrasafa is this pure, pure light that you're visualizing. And out of your, the lower portions of your body, all the negativity is being washed away 100,000 times, purifying all of your centers. Oh, it's amazing practice, 100,000 times. So this is very stabilizing for the mind. And then Karmapachenos, this is like the guru yoga at the end, you're just giving up to your teacher, pure negation of self 100,000 times. So then they say, after all that, just rest in your mind's true nature. Oh, okay, now you've done so much purifying, it's so much easier. Right? So much easier to do that. So, I want to do a short meditation here. Just closing your eyes. And just simply allowing to come to mind. One of your most favorite things to do. It could be being with a certain person, it could be a hobby, it could be something as simple as reading a book. Whatever it is, your favorite thing to do. Not only thinking of this, but allow yourself to really envision yourself doing this thing.
and then letting go of the actual act of doing this thing, but checking into your state of mind. Just even after these few, oh, maybe a minute, if that, maybe just seconds of just thinking about this thing. How do you feel in your body? How do you feel in your mind? Now for a few minutes, just meditate on that, just the feeling, the afterglow. And if you need to tap back into your favorite experience. Every once in a while, you can do so. And then just resting in this positive momentum. Now think that these feelings, if you're feeling a sense of even one positive thought or a positive feeling, that this came from nowhere. Nobody gave you a bag of money, nothing. You just sat, closed your eyes, and thought of the favorite thing that you like to do. So that means that this is already inside of you. It was just there waiting for you to find it. Came out of nowhere. And so then even releasing this notion of having to think of a positive thought and just, just being. Just trusting in your innate self, and it already is.
So how was that? So how many people felt positivity arise when they thought of their favorite thing to do? So where did that come from? It's already here, right? So it's just how we, how we got there was through conceptualizing. We got there through relative reality. But what we found was true nature. We got there through conceptual reality. Conceptual reality gets us to the cushion, right? If with, without this, really why practice? really don't do absolutely anything. And not even to the cushion, but to the moment of, I really want to be happy, so I really want to be aware right this moment in informal meditation, every moment of every day. It's because we want to be happy and we want to suffer less, right? That that gets us to this point. But look how easy it is to tap into that, and then how was it when you let go? And this might be totally different from everybody. At the very end, just not needing anything. How was that? Peaceful. It was peaceful? Mm-hmm. So what were you doing that made it peaceful? lingered on its own? Yeah. Great. Thank you. I felt pretty easy to stay with it. Mm-hmm. Pretty easy to stay with it. What's that again? There's a lot of things that uh-huh. I think about. Yeah. But there's also like this edge of like, it's like really fun, but then there's this thing I don't like about it. Mm. Uh-huh. So like trying uh-huh. to find the one thing that's just like perfect. Yeah, and right. It's funny. Uh-huh. It's like, okay, that's, that's, yeah. So I bring that like appreciation to every moment, but then there's also this edge of like still seeking and wanting to yeah. be better. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. So that that meditation was my lesson in karma. One of my teachers, Kimpo Jigme, he um, was just, I think, a few of us. And he sat us down for a karma lesson. And he says, people talk about karma a lot. He said, some people believe in karma. Some people do not believe in karma. He said, so we're going to give teaching today on karma. So he said, sit down, and this is what he did. But he did much shorter than that, even. And he said, open up your eyes. That's karma. That's it. You see how you thought of something? And then it kind of lingered. That's karma. Even when you weren't thinking about it, you're still feeling it. Like it came back. Like, that's it. That's it. That's that was the whole teaching. That's it. That's all he did. <laughs> we went on to something else. <laughs> so uh, I actually want to leave some openness today, do something a little bit different. I want to see if Wendy can maybe join me up here. She doesn't know this yet. But. Um, I just... Uh, I want to leave room for just some open discussion, some Q&A, <coughs> some questions. And I know we have a big group, and some people are shy in big groups, so a lot of times we go down to smaller groups. But just some overall uh, questions about practice in general. Yeah. 
So those of you who do not know Lindy, she's a much better practitioner than I am. She's amazing. So, um, and Lindy and I both, as far as teachers go, we both like to be called like sh more like sharers. And the whole, if we could have these big, uh, everything turn into a circle and not have us up here and then everyone out here, we'd both enjoy that. But um, so just when we get, you know, when we have a Q&A or something like this, we're just sharing. We're learning from you, you're learning from us. We're all here together, sharing together. So it's that kind of a thing. But when we do have discussions just to create a safe environment, we just ask there's no cross-talking, so we don't tell people like what to do. We keep it within our own experience. Like We use I, like I think this or that, so people feel safe to bring up certain things without being told what to do. Now, sometimes we have, oh, I know the perfect something for you, so maybe after class we say, oh, look at this book or something like that. Just to maintain some, some safety. Um, yeah, so about today's talk about your practice in general, about meditation, about anything and everything. Any questions? It's something that's been on my mind since I think you were here. Um, so when you talk about self and yourself, and when I hear you know, self, there's a part of me that clenches in extreme fear. <laughs> oh, no, self. I think I know what you're talking about, but I came out of a uh, childhood in which I didn't really have self. So in the psychological terms, it took me a long time to even find a self mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. kind of, you know, take that self into the world. Mm. So how do, you, how do you deal with that sort of Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's very common. I'll just say that the allow Wendy to say something too, but very common to have that reaction of like, what do you mean non self? Right? And there's a famous story of one of the when Buddha was giving a teaching on non self or emptiness, and I've said this here be once before, but of one of his, one of the monks that was meditating, all of a sudden he just grabs his robes, just grabs his robes like this, and everyone comes out of meditation, and Buddha says, oh, he just realized emptiness. Mm. But in his realization of emptiness, he grabbed onto himself, like, because oh! he's empty for a moment. Mm. Um, so, uh, go ahead, Wendy, if you want to say something first. Well, I, I think that... Um, this is like the question to me that's the ultimate paradox of practice. It, it really hits right on that, so I'm kind of like glad you brought that up. I still grapple with that. Um, I think it takes a very strong sense of self and agency actually to practice. Like how hard was it to get here, to make time, to sit, to go on retreat, Right to save money to go on retreat, to tell your loved ones I'm practicing. I mean, it, that takes a sense of self. And certainly, I think in this culture and in this world, you really need a strong sense of self to exist. You know, work, pay bills, go to school, do what you have to do. It takes a really healthy sense of self. Um, so, wow, this just enormous paradox that I find plagues me, especially, you know, around, like, I want to go on a long retreat. Boy, do you need a lot of self to make that happen in my world, you know, and probably in your world, too. Um, so that would be this, um, you know, relative, as we would say, this, it's, it's practical to have a good healthy sense of self and that's what psychology helps us with and 12-step programs and things like that when you're sitting and meditating a long time or a short time or in an instant oh just how crazy this is um, 
when the mind starts to really get still, then what starts to happen organically and naturally is we begin to question our self-concept, who we think we are, and who we think everyone else is, and everything that rises in the mind becomes this question. You know, it's another, I still don't have all the answers to that, honestly, but there's this vast sense of emptiness and no self that the Buddha talks about and every tradition talks about um, that is perceptible, perceivable through the practice. Um, and they almost feel like, you know, how we have that coexist together is a fascinating thing I'm still learning. And we're all still learning about what that is. What is that? What is that? And the great <coughs> teachers all tell us that it's not about knowing what it is. It's about keep asking what it is. Because it's not knowable. You know, it's not an entirely knowable thing. And why do we say that? Because, again, it's the mind that wants to take some knowledge and wrap it in a box and file it and label it and maybe even write, I understand it, right? <laughs> and shelve it. That's what the mind does. It categorizes, it makes things neat, chunks of understanding, and then you put your name on it, right? And this is about not putting your name on it. Mm -hmm. And it's the, it's, there's a sense of loss of control as well, right? Of just, what is this? So that's why in some Buddhist traditions, like the Korean Buddhist tradition, they meditate on what is this on the inhale and the exhale is don't know. What is this? Don't know. Right. And that's probably the closest thing you could say, you know, and so. So that would be a great meditation on that. What is this? Don't know. Um, and Ryoto, when he was here a couple of weeks in Long Beach, we asked him the question, you know, can you just talk about what is relative and what's absolute in Zen Buddhism? And it's on YouTube. You can, you can catch it. I don't, was anybody there? Oh, gosh, it was amazing, his talk on relative, and I, I recommend that, a beautiful talk. But inherent is the paradox, you know? And, and, and some of life is just really being able to live with that paradox, uh, you know, just that, that, what is this don't know? I'll just add one, one more thing to that, is this, and what Wendy's alluding to is the experience. So we have the experience of relative reality. We have the experience of self. So we could also investigate the experience of no self. So we don't actually don't need to figure it out. So like she was saying, like, inhale, you know, don't know. So this is one meditation on, on the experience of no self. The other meditation is find the self. Where, you know, where are we? Are we the body? Are we the mind? Well, who owns the body? Who owns the mind? Where exactly am I exactly? Right here, right here, right here, right here, right here. Where, 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 where am I, really? So this is an experience. So we're so used to experiencing the relative self. We could experience that and just know both. That, yeah, I exist, but maybe not in the way that I used to think I did. I exist like this. So just investigate those two. It was like a line here. <laughs> on, on that same note, I um, um, when you talk about, it's hard for me to put these kind of things into words. But even you know, as a beginner, uh, you know, just learning to meditate and taking that time to do it was always a little bit fearful. And now, even years later, trying to have the idea of being a beginner and sit and then kind of drop in and I still feel that fear and maybe some of that fear is you know sometimes I'll get to a point where in the sit with just it's almost just pure fear of not knowing what's unfolding what's there and sometimes I'll 
find myself back off because I'm just too afraid to, and it could just be a sensation or a, you know, it's, and it's almost the same sort of fear that would be there about sitting, oh, okay, you know, just, just a five minutes of sitting, or just a five, and, and now, you know, I <coughs> pretty extended periods of time, but there's still a certain amount of fear that would come up for me of, I think that maybe that's part of it, just this unknownness mm -hmm. of. Yeah, I, I'm, the I'm fear not really is. Sure. It's just, you know, I mean, it can bring me to tears of to just stay. You yeah. know, it's almost like the beginning when your leg falls asleep, it's like, oh my God, am I supposed to just stay here? My leg falling asleep. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. So you, you know, work your way in that, and, and now it's not so much the sensations of things like that, but what's, what's going to unfold, and it's, it will really um, scare me. Mm -hmm. So, the fear is wonderful. I know this is funny to say this, but this, this is so beautiful because this is some of the, the last lingering effects of self trying to hold on. So when we're about to let go, the self comes up and it, it's scared, right? So actually, advanced practitioners will actually have to go into cemeteries to build up that fear again, or they will actually meditate on the edge of a cliff to actually have that fear arise, that, that self arise, like, oh, you're about to die, like this, right? <laughs> and then they have that arise, and then they meditate on that. Where are you? What exactly am I trying to protect? Investigate the substantiality of this. Where is it? What is it? How much does it weigh? What's the texture? Like, what is this fear? What is that? That right there, right? Everything that could be seen could be unseen, right? Everything arises, everything falls away. So everything that is impermanent is not us. So when we look at it, eventually it's going to disappear, but we can't have aversion. That's the very moment to really look. Non-judgmental awareness, just be with that. Be with that. It's very common, but very good. Here is really good. Can I ask something? We try to feel ego. Let the ego go. Yeah. Always let let it go. Don't don't be afraid. Just just let it go. Because the ego always will try to hold to you. The material self will try to hold. You have to let it go. Just put it in a dark space and void there, and then just feel free. Both of you brought up, and I, it seems that we often talk about this stuff as if it's a belief rather than an experience or more of an emotion or a feeling. And I, I thought, I don't really need to go to a, a cliff and sit and look down. I can just read the paper. There's Ebola, there's Enterovirus. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I can go on CNN headlines, and I mean, it's... And, but I was kind of struggling with this this week, and it's like all of these awful things that could happen to my grandkids or to the people I love or this world that we're living in, and I feel all of this fear, and, and I know that it's sitting with it. It's, it's what I think it sounded to me like you were saying of going into this, and so I'm saying I just have to be with it. You know, and then there's a moment it comes or it doesn't come in which that's life. That's what this human life is all about. It's got some scary things and it's got some beautiful things. And that's when it doesn't have to be awful. It's life. Mm -hmm. It's okay. I mean, it's not okay in that, you know, I'm gonna die, you're gonna die, we're all gonna die, but I mean, it is okay too. Mm -hmm. That's the price we pay for being here. But that's more of an, an, an emotion, I mean, isn't it? It's not something that I can do to make it go away or whatever. It either comes or I stay working with it longer. I mean, that's the way it feels to me. I don't know if that's... Mm -hmm. I think sometimes like a response that could really be skillful or helpful is 
so much compassion for whatever is arising in the moment, in the practice, like meeting it with so much acceptance and compassion, because uh, it's hard to be on the planet, you know, and it's hard to be a human being, right? Got all the, it just is hard. It's hard. And so it's like the fear of non-being the Buddha talked about, right? So sometimes you're sitting and, and there's just fear because it's quiet, right? The mind isn't moving and it's not active and that can be scary and there's a fear and aversion to non-being that, that's just inherent in us. So meeting that with compassion and kindness and just saying, yeah, it's, it's part of who we are and the makeup and what arises, just bringing awareness that's really kind to the fear is arising, to non-being. And then there's also fear in being. You know, you read the paper and you think about everything that's going on. It's terrifying. I could turn on the radio for 30 seconds and it's terrifying. It's amazing how fast the terror comes in. Um, if it's not Ebola, it's world climate, you know, or, or, or politics. So there's fear arising in being, you know, and having to be here and be with all of it. And that's needs compassion too, because it's, it's so overwhelming sometimes. Um, so it just needs our compassion at that moment, that present moment to turn towards ourselves and, and be able to say it's hard. You know, it's hard. And really allowing it to be exactly where it is. That's the only deal. That's, that's all we got, is to be really real with whatever it is that's happening, not judging it, but just saying it's here. And it's quite a ride, you know? Every minute, it's quite a ride in human being. Tim Tim. Um, um, Kavana? Okay. I have a couple, there's a couple of things I was going to ask that they're being answered. But my experience is that at the beginning, usually at the beginning of the sit, the meditation, you know, it's a lot of things softening go there, right there, very, very present. Overwhelming, whatever, you know, I kind of push it away, it's there because I'm not going anywhere, I'm sitting. And after it happens very few times, but I, what I remember, glimpses of it, that everything is gone. Everything is gone. I said, and then I start thinking about, where did it go? Oh, who cares? You know, who cares? And this is the space, I, you know, it is indescribable, but it's just glimpses of it. I mean, you have, I don't have control over it, but I know it's there. no aversion so this is why we call the middle path so we talk a lot about suffering about not having an aversion to suffering so not an attachment either to happiness see so the same thing you can grasp for for happiness we can have an aversion to suffering so it works with both of those things so you're not exactly you're not only striving you know for happiness so in this striving for happiness there's no grasping for happiness. So we say, yeah, we want enlightened mind, we want happy mind, but we're not grasping at it. Just like these spiritual or meditative bliss, right? So the first thing that, that happens when you have meditative bliss, 
you want more meditative bliss. And you say, I don't know how I got there, but I want more. But how you got there was actually beginner's mind, not even knowing that that was maybe even available, right? Because it's our true nature. It's just there. It's actually not conceptualism that gets us there. So the striving for happiness is a great way not to be happy. You see a lot of people that are striving for happiness, they're miserable, right? There's a great quote on the way for, on the pursuit of happiness, you have to stop and be happy. Like, oh, I just can't wait to be happy. I want more and more happiness. So that's right. So it's, that's the paradox is that stop striving altogether. We actually are. Yeah. So, and this is really, this is really what we're talking about. The Gandhi quote that I shared on Facebook, whatever you do, what, what, I already forgot it. Um, <laughs> whatever you do is not going to matter, but it's really important that you're going to, that you have, that you do it anyway. That's pretty much it. So you were this, um, non-attached, uh, Passionate non-attachment. I love this term. Passionate non-attachment. The mandala, the uh, the sand mandala is going around. This is passionate non-attachment. I think it's it's in L.A. So they're doing the sand mandala, you know, hours and hours and hours of tedious, tedious, tedious work to create this amazing, beautiful sand mandala. So this is the example of what we're talking about here. And then they take the mandala and then they throw in the ocean. You know. So why are they doing it? This is, this is what we live in, that we have to get this, that we live in a relative reality. We're going into a non-relative reality. So we have to, this is our platform, this is our base, this is where we're jumping off. We could be jumping off into the ocean of bliss, but to jump, you've got to be here. You've got to take the jump, right? You've got to walk to the end of the pier, and you've got to jump. And if we don't have this relative reality figured out, we're never going to be able to walk to the end of the pier. We're going to go the other way and go back onto land and have a drama-filled gossip fest <laughs> all of our lifetime <laughs> and think this island is fantastic. I don't need to jump off into the ocean of bliss and get out of here. This is a great little soap opera I got going on here. Mm -hmm. so. It's almost like really see how that balance between relative here and absolute here, like living in both worlds and having some balance in it, moving, so critical, not getting mm. stuck. And Ryoto talked about not getting stuck in relative and not getting stuck in absolute, mm. you know. And, and uh, it's a great lesson. Mm -hmm. I'll put that link, so for those of you that are not on the mailing list, make sure I have your name and email on your way out, and I'll put that link um, in the newsletter and on the Facebook page, the link to the YouTube video. Bonnie Law. I think the exercise that you did was such a lovely um, foray into what you're talking about. Because I, once I was there with this, this that whole vibration, it was like an anchor dropped away. Just dropped away, and then there wasn't jostle. It was just being and it was a great exercise that really got me there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So let's just have a couple minutes of silence before we end. Just sending out some some loving kindness to all the beings that could not be here today and that are stuck in that relative reality and don't even know that there's a way out at all and that they couldn't make it here today because they just don't know may all beings be happy May all beings be safe. May all beings be free.
Thank you all so much for coming. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.